Well, good morning and welcome to the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Aldazan, with Mr. Brian Terry. Hey, between two of us, we'll try to answer any automotive questions you might have. Go ahead and give us a call. 291-6901. There you go. And you use the area code... 225 you can reach us from anywhere inside the continental united states this morning we sure wish you would we always enjoy hearing folks all around the country and all around town and even all around the world if you're willing to get up in the right time zone (laughs) yeah you got you got it (laughs) go and give us kyle always make show more interesting i thought we would talk just a little bit today about some of the questions that we get okay because i do get a lot of email probably anywhere from 10 to 20 email a day from folks all around the world right I, I thought some of them make some pretty, some pretty good, good points. points. Yeah, I, I kind of wish more of them would call in so that everybody could hear. But nonetheless, we well, we'll take care of them this way. That's exactly right. One of the guys wrote the other day, and he said the motor that starts at the beginning of the show. Uh huh. He says that sounds like some kind of a radial aircraft engine. Right. Now, so that's very astute of you to notice that. Yeah, that motor that starts up just before the bumper music rolls. Uh huh. That's a B-17 bomber engine cranking up. There you go. <laughs> Keep a little history with the show. There you go. Well, it goes to our 40s kind of music right. and theme and all. And I just thought that was a kind of a cool way. We used to start up. We had a right engine yeah. that would start and rev and so on. But come, I came across that. I don't remember where I found that sound effect. There's a, a site out there that sells sound effects of just okay. about all kinds. And people who produce movies and videos and all that can go to these guys and they sell sound effects. That's right. what they do. And I was just flipping through the list and saw that. And I said, yeah. oh, that is just, I got to oh, have yeah, that. Oh, yeah, got to have that. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, there you go. That's more of our call or people who write in just the kinds of questions, the diversity of questions. Right. And it's get. not all automotive type questions. Not all. A lot of it is. And for instance, we had Miss Jim Mayer, who is one of our listeners and a good customer Chester, here in Baton yeah. Rouge. Had several uh, questions. Several good questions that thought made good points. First is he talked about oil filters, and he says, how do you know you're getting a good oil filter? What are the different brands of oil filters? And he mentioned some brands, uh-huh. which I, obviously I can't start talking about brand names on the air right? just because of the way the world is. But as a general rule, most of the better oil filters are going to be adequate but the best choice, the safest choice, is always going to be manufacturer by the manufacturer of your car. Correct. The reason I say that, there are other filters out there that are good filters, but the problem is a lot of these companies make multiple lines of filters. Correct. With the same brand name. And it's same colors. Same colors. Same, same box, packaging. Right. And they may go to... Uh, Who knows? Whomever and buy a filter, put it in a box with their name on it, and sell it at a reduced rate. This is particularly prone with the big box stores, Mm -hmm. a lot of the discount auto part chains, and especially more so on the Internet. When you go on and you find a filter for a much reduced rate, it's possible or very likely, I would say, that that may not be the same as their name brand filter. So there's a lot more danger there when you pick up a filter and it's a silver line rather than a gold line. So people have to think and research and check a lot more than if they just buy the OEM filter. Correct. Now, GM filters have come under some scrutiny lately because Delco went to their E-line filter and all that. Uh-huh. We've checked into it. We've cut some open. We've done some research on it. And from everything I can tell, it's still as good a filter as they've ever built. 
The Honda and Toyota filters are good filters. Right. I just like using the original equipment filter. Now, does that mean that is the absolute maximum ultimate filter ever? No, it doesn't. But it it was designed by the engineer that engineered that engine. Mm -hmm. He designed that filter to filtrate the oil that you're going to, that he specified for that engine. Well, that's right. And when you're looking for more filtration, then you have to go to something like a dual filtration system. For instance, virtually all of the filters who are all, we're talking all filters now. Correct. All filters on the market are going to filter down to 40 micron level. Mm -hmm. And that's what the engineer specifies as a good compromise size because particles that are a lot smaller than 40 microns can kind of go through and not do a tremendous amount of damage. Things that are bigger than that are going to be blocked. Now, would it be better to go to like a 20 micron filter or 10? Sure. Possibly would. But But. the the problem (laughs) is you're either going to have to change the filter every week or have a filter half as big as the car. Correct. Because when you start taking out smaller and smaller particles, it clogs up much faster. And with today's extended oil changes, there's no way you could possibly use that. Right. So what would be better if you could go to a dual system with a 40 micron filter and then maybe a 20 behind, behind it, it? That might would work to some degree. But the problem is if you make too small of a filter, too tight of a micron level it's going to plug up then it's going to start bypassing which is no, no good at all right no and filtration at all the other option is let it block the all off and not bypass in which case it burns the engine up right but so that the compromise is the factory filter right and that's always going to be your best filter as far as being safe so yeah take a few of these phone calls we've got herb online good morning herb good morning i, have, I got one two questions i one comment your filter deal just brought up mm-hmm. years ago are you there herb well, once you call back, Herb, on another line, that one's got a, a bunch of us breaking up real bad. We can't hear you. Let's see. We're going back to our phone lines with Mike. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, gentlemen. Thank you for your show, as always. Well, thank, well, thank you, you, I have two quick questions, hopefully. I have a 2007 Hyundai Tucson, mm-hmm. and uh, within the last, let's say, three months, there's been two or three occasions where I'm just driving and just out of the blue for about five to ten seconds, my AC stops blowing not warm not cold nothing it stops blowing yeah. totally comes back on in 10 seconds no problem three times in a, in a month maybe or, uh, three times in three months mm-hmm. I'd say. any idea what that might be mike the first two things that i would check and i know you've called in before and i get the feeling that you're a pretty proactive kind of a guy if there is a cabin air filter make sure that filter is not restricted in any way shape or form and i'm sure you've probably already done that yes the second thing would be to take an amp meter and check the amp draw on that blower motor because what can happen under certain conditions, blower motors can start to go bad, and that doesn't mean they quit running. But what they do is they'll start dragging or whatever, and the first symptom is always going to be the amp draw on the motor is going to start getting elevated. And if it gets to a certain point, it can heat something up and cause like a thermal reset, which could cut you off, then the motor cools down and comes back. Many control panels also have a sensor of some sort in there or a circuit in there that will shut it down under certain conditions like that. It sounds to me like the blower motor is maybe getting hot, shutting down, and then resetting. You didn't mention that it was linked to like hitting a bump or anything like that. I have seen cases where you'd have a loose connection somewhere, and again, hitting a bump will cut it off, and then you hit another bump, and it'll come back, that sort of a thing. So check those things, and if you don't find anything there, give me a call back, and we'll try to think some more things up. I think we've dropped Mike. I hope that was a complete answer, Mike. Let's go back to our phone lines with Herb. Good morning, Herb. You're back again. Yes, sir. 
that was all. If you heard the deal about the filter, it was that when it quit getting hot, they told you that's when it's time to change it. But my main question was, my truck, four-wheel drive, and it doesn't say anything, a Toyota, and it doesn't say anything, a Tundra, doesn't say anything about the anti-locks or anything like that. I'm wondering if that skid control system, that electronic deal, mm-hmm. does that take the place of the anti-locks or the oldest? Yeah, it's all kind of built. Trash control works both ways. Basically, trash control is just anti-lock brakes with some additional software in it. Because the way anti-lock work is it looks at all four wheels and it measures the speed of the wheel. When one wheel starts to turn slower than the rest, it assumes that wheel is locked and so it's going to start to pulse the fluid to it. Yeah. Uh, The way trash control works, it still monitors the wheels the same, but when a wheel turns faster than the other wheels, then it's going to assume that wheel is spinning. So it's going to do right. exactly the opposite. But, yeah, it's basically all the same system. It's all integrated. So any lock, I mean, so the lock-up rear end is not really necessary with the uh, new type stuff. Well, mm-hmm. yes and no. That's sort of a whole different situation where, like, a, a limited slip differential is going to lock the two rear wheels together. And there's, with a, a differential, one wheel is going to spin and one wheel is not. That's just the way it is. Cause it, ha- it has to be that way so you can go around a corner. All that right. limited slip does is either puts a counterweight in there that can sling out when it starts to spin and lock it or put clutches in there to lock it together. That's sort of a different situation. That's more for an extreme. The one is watching the system when you're driving 40, 50 miles an hour and one wheel starts to slip. The other one is when you're stuck in mud at basically zero miles an hour and you're trying to pull out. So it's right. kind of two different systems completely, although I guess they could engineer them to where one could override the other or at least – Enter into the, you remember the little ML three twenty Mercedes that little SUV truck they had, they had a sort of a similar deal like that where they had taken the skid control, tied it into some solenoids and stuff, and it would do that. It would kind of lock the rear end. Most people do not do that, I guess, because of the complexity and what have you. But technically, it could be done, but traditionally, it is not done very often. Okay, that kind of falls back into what you said last week, I believe, but change that fluid every once in a while in them rear end there where you, and then brake where you won't rust something up then. well yeah because brake fluid is out of alcohol and it's going to absorb moisture out of the air so it's going to become contaminated in about three years rear end oil is not made out of alcohol or anything but it's still it's it's a high extreme pressure lubricant and it's constantly being churned around so it does deplete most schedules will recommend a hundred thousand miles on that although many of them are as little as thirty thousand miles so you just have to look at your book and see. I know it depends on what you're doing with it also. Yeah, and if you're towing something heavy, you're way better off to go to that 30,000-mile schedule than you are to push it out to 100. Oh, I was, it's something else that just along them lines. It's where I used to work paper mail, the uh, gearboxes in the summertime would get so hot it would cook the grease and you had to get it out with shovel would <laughs> yep. off of, yeah that, that, your hand. that can definitely it happen mm-hmm. yeah it burn your hand to touch the gearbox you fry egg on it oh yeah but, yeah well that's ex- it's ex- yes extreme pressure application so it definitely does get very very hot and the advantage to a rear differential under a vehicle is the air flowing under the vehicle tends to cool it off right. so it's not quite as extreme a situation but yeah they do get hot and heat does break the lubricant down so See all our lines lit up. We got to take a quick little break, but if you guys hold on, you'll be straight up after the break. Hey, Mike, heading out for your run? I just knocked out three miles myself. Yep, did my meditation this morning to de stress, and now I'm going to get a little exercise. Tomorrow I need to take the car into the shop, though. 
That shaking problem's getting worse. Uh, you know, you should take care of your car like you take care of your body, and it would save you some money. What do you mean? Preventative maintenance is key. Me and Kathy bring our cars in once a year to Agco for a general inspection. They give them the once-over and perform the maintenance needed to keep us on the road. I haven't had any kind of major problem with my cars in forever. I guarantee they would have caught the cause of your shaking issue and fixed it before it became a problem. And probably saved me money, too. Yep. All right, I'm heading home this evening for steak and lobster. Then Kathy and I are going to test run our new hot tub. Surf and turf and a new hot tub? Yeah, and champagne. Saving money on your car allows you to enjoy the finer things in life, Mike, my boy. Schedule your general inspection today at Agco Automotive. Agco, it's the place to go. Welcome back. If you just join us at the Automotive Hour, I'm your host, Louis Aldazan, with Mr. Brian Terry. We sure appreciate you spending your Saturday morning with us. I see all our lines are lit up. We're going to get to you as quick as we can. Just if you hold in there, we'll take just a minute to get all these calls answered. We got Glenn online. Good morning, Glenn. Good morning, Louis. Hey, this is Glenn calling from Los Angeles. Hi, Glenn. Hey, I just wanted to say I really, really appreciate your extensive knowledge of automotive and your vast experience. I'm, it's very, very impressive. I well, really, you. really appreciate it. Well, I'm an engineer. I work in uh, aerospace. I've worked in the automotive field before. And I just wanted to make a comment and then get your feedback and your comment. I think we'll agree. You know, I work in the elastomer business. Mm-hmm. And I'm concerned about the tires that are made in China and engineered and designed in China. To mm-hmm. me, it seems like they just use inferior materials. Their structural integrity is inferior. Their tread life, their traction ability, their noise, their design and everything just seems to me to be inferior to American engineered and manufactured tires. What, what are your thoughts? Glenn, I would have to agree with you, not only tires, but a lot of products. And right. I hate to paint a country with a broad brush because I'm sure they do make some good products as well. But it seems to me that they just don't have the quality standards or at least the regulations that some other countries have. We see a lot of products that come out of there that they just don't even work out of the box. Right. I don't like those tires, uh, and I know the ones you're talking about, and, mm-hmm. and I have seen a number of problems where people come in with a huge vibration in the car, brand new tires, and none of them are even close to being round. They just weren't right. cast round. The longevity and all is more of a long-term problem. You have to observe it over a period of time to see what's going to happen there, and, you know, belts coming apart, all those sorts of things. But, yeah, I don't know. I hate the fact that they seem to allow all this stuff to just flood into our country with very little regulation, very little quality control, quality control on yeah. it. But yeah, that is definitely a problem. And again, not only with tires, when we see it, it would break pads. We've seen with ignition parts, right. there's all kind of, they can clone just about anything. Right. Uh, axles. Oh yeah. CV axles. Yeah. Some of the new CV axles, they're considered as new. Right. And they're not as good as the ones you're taking off the car. Yeah. I believe they, it. they don't work right out the box. And what's really bad, Glenn, is that, they have wiped out certain industries. For instance, there was an industry in the United States that used to remanufacture CV axles. Yep. And they came out with a pretty good product. It was an OEM axle. They went in, they changed all the wearing parts, and you had a pretty good product when you're through. But now they can sell a new axle cheaper than they can rebuild it. So they basically wiped out the rebuilt industry, which was a viable alternative new. Yep. And now all this junk on the market, it's gotten to the point now we have to go buy new OEM axles at a cost of about 10 times what the rebuilt ones were because nobody was rebuilding axles anymore. Right, right. It's really sad. 
It is. So, I, also, I wanted to mention a couple of years ago, Consumer Reports did a study on tires comparing American and other mm-hmm. Chinese tires. Of course, the, out of 20 tires, the three manufactured and engineered in China came out at the very bottom. And they mm-hmm. said something interesting that I think confirms what you say. They said, although the Chinese tires only cost about half the price of right. a top-rated Michelin tire, mm-hmm. the Michelin tire lasts three times as long. Well, that's right. So, and you tell me which one is else cheaper. Up. Yeah, it, right. it's overall lowest cost. Yes. Not absolutely. price. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Thank you very much. Glenn, I really thanks appreciate for calling, your man. time. And if, if I could call from Los Angeles, your listeners can certainly call from Baton Rouge. That's there right. You <laughs> Thank you for your time. Thanks, Thank Glenn. You. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. All right, 291-6901 is the number. If you want to be part of the Automotive Hour, we would love to have you. And we've got Mike on the line again. Mike, good morning, Mike. Hey, guys. Uh, sorry about that. I got disconnected. <laughs> but uh, I, I got the idea of what you were saying with the mm-hmm. blower motor, so I'll check that out. And I had a, one other follow-up question sure. for a 14-year-old F-150, 8-foot bed. It's only got 80,000 miles on it. Just recently, out of the blue, except for I loaded it heavy, and now, I don't know if it's related, I have this weird squeaky racket in the back of my truck, and it's only during slow-speed turns. I could be going down 40 miles an hour, bumps, 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 no problem. Mm -hmm. But slow-speed turning and stopping, it's like making all kinds of racket. uh, Mm. Can you help me with that? Hey, one thing you might just try, if it does it mostly in turning, it could be the rear differential. If it's a, Is it a limited slip differential? Do you know? It is limited slip. I have the, you know, I've changed it with the synthetic and the uh, slip, you know, and the, the additive. This additive. So I haven't had any trouble with that. And it doesn't feel like it's grinding. It feels like it's like the springs or something. Okay. Not feels, but it, I, I just... I want to get your input. Yeah, if you it, think if that's it's, a possibility? If it's not the differential, then the next thing I would see, if it's mostly on turning, look and see on the rear stabilizer bushings. Okay. Make sure they're not loose and the bar is slipping because that bar is twisted anytime you turn. And if those frame bushings get loose, they're supposed to be so tight that they're basically bonded to that bar. They're supposed to twist when the bar moves up and down. But what happens as they, that bar breaks free, then it starts to rotate inside the bushing, which wears the bushing. And when it does, it'll that rubber slipping on the metal, and it'll give you that loud creaking, popping, squeaking uh, kind of a thing. That and it, very easy to diagnose. You can just disconnect the two ends temporarily, tape them up out the way, and go drive the truck. See if the noise is gone. I didn't even realize it had a rear most do uh, rear yeah. bar like yeah, that. Yeah, not yeah. everyone has it, but most of them do. There's a couple more things you can check too. If you'll look between okay. between the leaf springs in the pack at at when the the leaf spring ends at the next spring. There should be a plastic pad there. Yep. And if the pads have gotten smashed out, you know, when you overloaded it, maybe it moved and it broke the pads. And then when you unloaded it, the, the pad was gone. Now, now it's metal on metal. That's good Because point. when you turn, the truck is going to twist a little bit when you turn, just the nature mm-hmm. of the vehicle. And if those springs are operating in a dry spot now, they will make a squeak and a rattle and, and all kind of noise like that. And again, to diagnose, Mike, what you can do is take a screwdriver, separate those leaves, and just kind of put some grease in there temporarily and just see if noise goes away. If yep. it does, then you're going to need to replace those cushions. Perfect. And is it easy to replace the cushions? Not hard. No, it's not too okay. bad. You, If you jack the vehicle up by the body and let the rear end hang down, you can get some yep. more leverage between the, the springs. A lot of times you can put a screwdriver in there, like Lewis was saying, and pry the springs apart, slide the pad in and let it go. In some severe cases, you have to wedge them apart a little bit more. You may have to take the bolt out and spread the spring 
pack apart. Yeah, some of them have like a, a band or something wrapped around it. You may have to bend the ears on that band to get it to open up enough, too. Right. Some of them do have a clip on there that holds them together. Perfect. Listen, but, guys, one last thing. I want to tell everybody out there in Radio Land, you guys are the best, and everybody needs to go and give you some reviews because you blow away every other person on the radio. You don't push snake oil. You give. You know more than anybody. Thank you, thank you. Oh, you well, bet. You're welcome. All right, Mike. All thank right. you. Take, Thanks for calling, man. Take care, guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, bye. Bye-bye. All right, let's see. Can we catch one, one of these more? people who's been holding so long before our bike? Yeah, okay. we got the okay. We got Stuart online. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Lewis and Brian. I'm calling about my sister-in-law's 2014 Camry. She has put in service in January of 14. She mm-hmm. has 21,000 miles on it. What would you recommend, if anything, at this point for uh, maintenance on that? Stuart, what year model was it? It's a 2014 Camry four-cylinder. Okay. Yeah, 14, yeah. so it's three years old. It's not going to need a huge amount of maintenance. Stuart, I would probably recommend having a general inspection done on the vehicle because a lot is going to depend on the way she has operated it. For instance, at that mileage, it's not shouldn't need a whole lot, but I would check the cabin filter, check the air filter, make sure they're not dirty. I would probably also take a look at the brakes because it is conceivable if she's all in town, you can wear a set of brakes out in that period of time, or at least they're getting close. Brian, got any ideas? Coolant shouldn't be due to no. five years on that one. The Spark coolant, plug should be good. The transmission should be good. The tires should still be good as mm-hmm. far as age. You might take a look at them. Make sure they're not wearing off to one side or something of that nature. Really, a, it's not a three-year-old with twenty-one thousand. Yeah. It's Mo- only about seven thousand a year, so it's not being driven much. Yeah, no, it's just town in town, and I handle the oil changes. Yeah, I would. Know. Okay, I would probably be most concerned with looking at the brakes and the yeah. filters okay. on it. A lot of people would suggest changing the brake fluid at that mileage, me included. It's not absolutely mandatory, but. And generally, that's going to fall right along the brake surface. So if it's, the brakes are fairly close, the fluid will get changed with the brakes. Right. right okay. If she happens to be real easy on brakes or she's done a lot of highway type driving, then I would recommend changing the brake fluid, you know, if you're not doing the brakes. She's mostly in town. Mm-hmm. I would say she's yeah. probably getting pretty close. Okay, great. Well, I appreciate it. We'll be talking to you soon about the appointment. Okay, All great. Right. Thank Sounds you. good, man. Take care. Thank Bye. you. Bye-bye. Thanks. All right, we got to take one more quick little break. Hey, Blake, you hold on. You'll be straight up after this break. So, Tina, are you interested in shopping next weekend? Oh, well, me and Harold leave for our European cruise on Friday. Another cruise? What? Are you all blowing the kids' inheritance? (laughs) No, we're just smart with our money. Like, our cars are paid off, and we're big on preventative maintenance. Harold takes them in once a year to Agco for a general inspection. They check everything out and perform maintenance on what we need to keep the cars running right. You'd be surprised on how fast you can save for a cruise without two car notes. (laughs) Wow, I never thought of that. I have time to do a little shopping this afternoon, though. I've got to get Harold a bathing suit. He keeps saying he wants one of those tiny Speedo suits because that what everybody wears in Europe, and I cannot let that happen. Okay, now I have an image of Harold strutting around the pool in a Speedo. I think I'm going to book a general inspection from Agco to clear my mind. He wanted hot pink, too. (laughs) Tina, stop. Schedule your general inspection today at Agco Automotive. Agco, it's the place to go. Hey, welcome back. Just join us at the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Aldazan, with Mr. Brian Terry. Hey, between two of us, we'll try to answer any automotive questions you might have. Just go ahead and give us a call. 
And we've got Blake's been patiently holding. Good morning, Blake. Good morning, gentlemen. How you guys are doing today? Doing We're great, sir. Doing great. I have one basic question for your expertise. Mm-hmm. Which engine design do you prefer? The dual overhead cam, which seems to be Toyota and Nissan's preference, versus the push rod design that GM is holding true. And I'll listen to your response. Thank you, and have a blessed day. Okay, Blake. Thanks, man. I really like push rod engines. They are going away for the simple reason they cannot control the valve timing as precisely with that as they can with the overhead cam. You know, they can put variable cam timing. They can do a lot more things with it. And the, the overhead cam is a cam in each head, whereas a push rod motor has a single cam in the middle. It's hard to control a single cam with a, a cam timing, right. whereas you can take two separate cams. Well, or four cams. A four cam, and can, you can do all kinds of things You can change intake and exhaust timing and all that now all that being said i prefer a push rod engine from a standpoint of durability and if you look at i guess the classic example there would be the chevrolet pickup as opposed to the ford pickup right where the chevrolet is using a push rod engine ford had their 5.4 four six yeah five, and four, four. all that that ford had a huge huge amount more problems than yeah. gm ever had with that i think that's why gm I got to give them credit because normally they, as boneheaded as everybody about that kind of stuff, but yeah, they have stayed tried and true with that push rod engine. I would prefer to have a push rod engine given the choice. Now, all that being said, I do have to say that Toyota has done a wonderful job with their four sevens and uh, four six now and the five Five seven. We really don't see any problems at all. In fact, less problems than we do with the push rod engine on GM. And, right. But it's not to do with the overhead cam and the push rod per it's se. The, it's the whole design of the engine. Total not design just that and component. quality of manufacture. I got to say the Toyota products oh, give yeah. way less problems than the GM products do. But all that, again, if you take one factor and try to compare it, then you're going to get one answer. But when you take more factors into consideration, you may get Things a different change. answer. So yeah. I don't want to be confusing, but... Like I said, everything else being equal, I would prefer a push rod engine over an overhead cam engine. However, if I had to choose between GM and Toyota, I would have to say Toyota definitely has a decided oh, yeah. advantage as far as durability on their engines yep. and uh, lack of problems and ease of maintenance, I guess. Yeah. Overall, they just, just don't have a lot of issues. GM has had some trouble. The biggest problems we see with that particular engine is the displacement on demand. Right. Gives some trouble. They've had some issues with all pressure. Uh, losing all pressure and it has some issues with all consumption just seems to be design it's just design or manufacturing one of the two either they're not manufacturing them properly or they weren't designed properly i think it's more manufactured because they don't all do it right there are some people who get two hundred fifty thousand miles never use a drop all and have so if it were a design issue i think it would be more across the board across the board but you do see the ones that the guy buys a brand new truck and it burns a quarter all every thousand miles right from the beginning. Right. You know, it's just something is not something's not right in that there. engine. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I hope that does answer your question. Doesn't confuse you even more. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we were talking before we got uh, all the calls there about just email and stuff that we get from different people, and we talked about Jim had asked about different oil filters. I think right. we pretty much covered that. Go with the OEM filter, and you can have a good filter. Correct. That's probably the safest bet. I mean, if you want to research things to the nth degree and find a filter that you think is going to work better, I can't argue with that either. But most people do not have that wherewithal. So if you go with the OEM filter, you know you're going to get a good filter. And not not only that, but you got the availability of the OEM filter. That's right. They're widely available. 
Now, another question that he had on the same thing is when do you change power steering fluid? Uh-huh. And again, that is one of those things most people, most manufacturers do not include no, changing power steering fluid in their maintenance schedule. The reason being has nothing to do with whether it helps or doesn't help. They're trying to keep maintenance costs as low as possible. Every item they add to that schedule increases the cost. Increases the cost overall. And people who operate large fleets of vehicles may look at that kind of stuff. So even though, to me, it's false economy. In other words, can you take the fuel filter off of a vehicle? Yeah, you can. Sure, but, but <laughs> you've lowered the overall maintenance cost, but you've increased the overall cost. Because Correct. when the filter eventually does restrict, now you got to change the fuel pump. So it's kind of one of those deals, just the way the world is today, where people go after the lowest price initially and increase the overall long-term cost considerably. And it's sort of the same thing with changing power steering fluid. Does it add some cost to maintenance? Yes, it does. It does. But does it help preserve the seals and stuff in an expensive system? Yes, it does. So I would say that if I had to just throw a figure out there, somewhere around 50,000 miles. Be a good idea. Be a good idea to replace the power steering fluid. And there's an article on our website on how to change power steering fluid yourself. That is one thing I think the average do-it-yourselfer can do pretty sure, easily sure. if they follow the guidelines on our, our website. It right. tells you pretty much how to do it, how to do it real easily. And, I mean, if I had a vehicle and I could do it myself, I might even consider doing it at 30,000 miles. Sure. I mean, when It's you not can, that hard a job to no, do. No, it's not hard at all, not expensive at all if you do it yourself. And when you consider a rack and pinion on many cars, it's twelve, 12 to $1,400. 15, the only thing that is going to help those seals stay pliable, thus not leak, is to keep that fluid fresh with the plasticizers and all the different polymers and stuff that are in the fluid. Mm -hmm. When that stuff starts to deplete, then you're going to start to have power steering problems. Leaks, noises, things of that nature. All those sorts of things. And it's just one of those deals where you're talking pennies against hundreds of dollars. Right. It just doesn't make sense to me not to do that, even though it is not technically on their, their maintenance schedule yeah i don't, I don't know why they don't they i just, would like to see it on they there. just don't want to increase their cost of maintenance and got guys like consumer reports and those who rate vehicles and they'll go through and say okay well this one has lower maintenance costs well yeah but you're not really looking at the total the total thing uh, yeah. you know it's kind of like that to me one of the biggest debacles in modern history is where they started going to the extended oil changes and what happened i think that all kind of began when reader's digest went in took, I don't remember the number, but a number of New York City taxi cabs, uh -huh. drove them 50,000 miles, changed it all 3,000 miles each on some, and went out longer, like 6,000 miles on others. Mm -hmm. And they said there's no difference. But again, you got to look at the sample. you got a car that's run basically... 24 hours a day. Yeah, it's run it's constantly. Broke. Yeah, unless it's broke. So you're not getting an average driver's perspective no. there, and you're only taking it out 50,000 miles. Right. Take the same test out 100,000 miles, you're going to see some different Oh yeah, definitely. results. Take a, a guy who uses his car 5 miles at a time, you're going to see vastly different results compared to a guy that gets in his car and drives 50 miles one way. Yeah, a taxi cab, they start the car in the morning, they don't turn it off probably until the, long, end, the long, end of the long, shift. Long enough to change the oil in it. Yeah. A lot of times. If that. So you because you got two shifts running, you got a day shift and a night shift, mm -hmm. use the same cab. Right. So the guy gets in it in the morning, it's already hot from the night before. Right. He drives it. When oil needs to be changed, they turn it off, change the oil. The next driver gets in it, and he's gone again. Well, right. So it stays running almost 24 hours a day. So you're comparing apples to oranges. You're not Correct. comparing the same thing. And that, to me, is misadvice. It was construed to the general consumer who took it literally 
manufacturers jumped on the thing. Oh, yeah, you can go 10,000 miles. Sure. And, I uh, mean, I, I think it's just silly because what you're doing, you're saving pennies and you're gambling hundreds, hundreds if not thousands. thousands of dollars. Sure. And since this has come into being, I guess, in the last 15 to 20 years, the incidences of early engine failure oh, yeah. have just, I mean. It's I like, mean, it was nothing to drive a car 150, 200,000 miles and not need any engine work hardly at all. Right. You would get tired of looking at the car before you ever had an engine problem. Right. Nowadays, they don't make 100,000 miles. Yeah, a lot of them are coming in at 80, 80. 90,000 miles. And no a lot pressure. of even lower than that, either low oil pressure, no oil pressure, leaking everywhere they can leak. Right. You know, the rear main seal's leaking, the valve covers are leaking, the front seal's leaking, the oil pan's leaking. Just huge repairs, camshafts wearing out, timing sure. change, stretching, braking, jumping timing, things that you didn't see at all back when people were changing every 3,000 miles. Now, does that mean that every person on this earth needs to go out 3,000 miles and change their oil? No, no it absolutely does not. not. It means that time or miles is not necessarily a good indicator of when to change the oil. Correct. The way you operate the vehicle is going to determine the when best. you use, change your oil. Right. You know, my Buick, for the first, I guess, fifth, well, the first 10 years of its life, didn't get used a whole lot. I would go to work in it. I would go home in it. It got three, four-mile trips. So I opted to use Mobile One in it, and I changed every 3,000 miles religiously. Right. Well, now my driving has changed. When I'm living in New Orleans, I'm driving 75 miles one way, doing that four times on a weekend. I can easily go out five or 6,000 miles now because sure. my driving has changed. You're at optimum driving. That's right. It doesn't get any short trips any longer. Every trip is 75 miles. So the oil has gotten to full temperature. It's balled all the moisture and contaminants out. It's running, it's being filtered, it's working out very, very well that way. So I can go out longer. The point is, you can't just take a number and, and apply say, it across yeah, the board. Exactly. We see that a lot. People will say, well, how many miles should the brakes on my car last? Well, that's a ridiculous question. Because it depends on how you drive the car. That's right. If you're driving from New York to Los Angeles, you probably hit the brakes once when you left New York and hit them once again when you got to Los Angeles, but you racked up three, yeah. 4,000 miles. However, if you're in stop-and-go traffic in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where you're rolling 10 feet, hitting the brakes, another 10 feet, hitting the brakes, you're going to wear those out much, much, much faster Sure, because you're braking a lot, the brakes are much hotter, and you're not rolling up many miles. Well, and also depends on what you're doing with the vehicle. If you're towing a, a big, heavy trailer, mm -hmm. I would be checking the brakes a lot more often. Well, yeah, that, and again, some people are just a lot easier on brakes. Sure. I get probably... Not, in fact, I think the brakes on my Buick, I changed them I changed them at 120,000 miles, and they still weren't worn out. They were just starting to make some noise. Right. The rear brakes, I think, are still original to the car. I got 168,000 miles on it. But, again, it's all highway driving. Sure. So I'm just not wearing brakes out. So Well, and that being, I've got an aunt that has one foot on the floor the whole time. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's either on the gas or on the brakes. i got a sister and like that. <laughs> look, they, they, go, they go through brakes. Oh, yeah. You, in a hurry. You can burn a set of brakes out in 10,000 sure. miles driving like that sure. and stop and go traffic. So the point is miles or even miles and time are not the whole answer to your maintenance needs. You have to consider your driving habits and your driving conditions. Sure. And that's why we started moving away. If people listen to my commercials a lot, they'll notice how we've moved from recommending maintenance schedules based on time and mileage to general inspections. Way, way, way more accurate once a year bring the car in and do a general take inspection. A look at it. Because one car is going to have needs, another car is not. Sure. So to go in Two and different do, drivers. do X number of things on a car at a certain number of mileage, some people are going to be throwing their money away. Other people are going to be vastly under 
maintaining the vehicle. Right. Even, so, a, even a single car in the same family with two different drivers. That's right. It needs to be looked at at least once a year. Mm-hmm. Once a year, you're always going to be okay because most people put twelve to 15,000 miles a year. That's and about you, average. You look at your schedule, most of your services are going to fall on twelve to 15,000 mile intervals. Right. So that's why that works out so well. Have a pro go in and look at it, or at very least do it yourself. Sure. Go ahead and get a series of things that you're going to check, and once a year go through and check all those things. Look at the brakes. Look at the belts look at the coolant, look at all these different things, and then change them according As to need. need. And you're going to be way, way better off doing that than just trying to push out some arbitrary number of miles because Correct. there's just not a number that's going to work For under everybody. all conditions. Right. Hey, we've got to take our last little break, but we'll be right back with a whole lot more. Hey, Jim, Becky said you were in the office and, whoa, what is up with all the charts and graphs, buddy? Oh, I'm using my system I've developed to keep up with the maintenance on my three cars. Is that an armillary sphere? Yes, yes it is. So, the oil gets changed every third full moon. Brake pads divide the years Becky and I have been married by our oldest son's age. Timing belt is leap year, except when it's on the time. You know there's a better way, right? I just take my cars into Agco once a year for a general inspection. They give me an honest opinion on the maintenance and repairs I need. Sometimes it's just an oil change and they send me on my way. One time, they caught something that could have led to a huge repair. Saved me thousands. Wow, that sounds great. You know, I'm always trying to save money any way I can. Uh, Let me get Agco's number online and uh, give them a call. Is that dial-up? Dude, there's a better way to save money. Schedule your general inspection today at Agco Automotive. Agco. It's the place to go. Hey, welcome back to the final segment of the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Aldazan, president of Agco Automotive. Got our lead tech, Mr. Brian Terry, right here in the co-pilot seat. Hey, between two of us, we'll try to answer any automotive questions you might have. Why don't you go ahead and give us a call? It's 291-6901. Still got a few minutes left. Try to get you in. And should you happen to miss your opportunity today, you can always go to our website, get your questions answered that way. There you go. The address is agcoauto.com. That is A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O.com. There's a contact bar on each and every page. Just click the button. A little form is going to come up and just fill out the form and send it on in. That is always the best way to get in touch with us. Some folks sometimes will go in and respond to an article because there's a little comment form, but that's just for other people to see. Uh-huh. Hey, I like the article. No, I don't like the article. That sort of thing. I don't receive that. So if you go in and type, a question on the bottom of that form i'm not not going to receive it you have to go to the contact form if you want me to get it and answer another thing i've noticed last week i had a lot of email get returned to me with email address wrong or server rejection or whatever be real careful when you type that email address in make sure you get it in right because if it happens to me then i just can't respond right one wrong character and it's it bounces back comes back end of it yeah so if you don't get an answer from me it's because either the email address was wrong or something or check your spam folder too occasionally on your security settings if you send something into a server that sends out a lot of email right it may assume it's spam and it'll put in a spam folder so i never ever not respond so if you do not receive a response from me it's because either i couldn't send it i didn't receive it or it went to the or spam. it went to a spam folder so I, it's not that i'm just ignoring you i never do that i answer every single email that i do receive you were talking today about email that we've got uh-huh and we kind of touched on this earlier with Stuart. but another question we got is when should brake fluid be changed traditionally the brake fluid is changed when you do a brake service which on most cars is going to be about every two to three years right However, 
if you are a very easy driver, you just don't wear your brakes out, and your brakes still look good at three years, it is advisable to go ahead and replace the fluid. Right, because that fluid is, a, is an alcohol base, and it absorbs moisture out of the atmosphere. And if it stays in the system too long, it starts attacking the metal components inside the system. And some of those components are twelve, fifteen hundred dollars $1,500. That's correct. And you want to do as much as you can to keep from having those damaged. Yeah, anytime you have dissimilar metals, and there's, if you remember back in your chemistry class days, if you take two dissimilar metals and put it in a corrosive environment, that's called a battery. Mm-hmm. Basically, you put two t- different types of metal into a corrosion, corrosive, and it'll start to eat up the stuff, but it'll produce voltage in the process. If you do that with a brake system, you get the same thing. You've got an aluminum ABS body and you've got a steel piston, piston. then when you put a corrosive liquid or you allow the liquid to become corrosive. That's the key. Yeah. What will happen is it'll start to eat up the braking system. And when that happens, then you end up with a major, major repair that could have been replaced or could have been repaired or yeah, first, avoid it. First thing you know, the ABS light pops on or the brake pedal starts sinking out from under your feet. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of those things could be avoided. Avoided. That's, there, there you go. go. <laughs> could be avoided with just a brake, sir, a brake fluid service. Yeah, if you go in and just change out the brake fluid, then you're going to take the corrosive nature of it out of there. And again, that's one of those things that does not show up on the maintenance schedule. It doesn't. Because they're trying to keep those numbers at the lowest possible amount they can. And so they just, and you got to remember, Car manufacturers are in the business of selling new cars. Sure. So if so, you have a major brake failure, you probably years, go trade, right. Yeah, you may decide to go trade the car and not repair it, which is what they kind of pushing for anyway. Exactly. Let's see if we can catch a couple of these calls before right. we go off. We've got Tim online. Good morning, Tim. Good morning. Yes, sir. I've got a 01 GMC Yukon, and the brake ABS lights go on and off. Yes, uh-huh. mm-hmm. Pretty typical. And, okay, I'm looking, wondering if it was a maybe a frayed ground wire or something else i don't know what it is yeah that's possible what you have to do tim on that is go in and read the codes and that won't be done with a code reader because it's in the chassis module you have to have something Uh, like a gm tech 2 where you can go in read the code and then that will tell you what circuit is causing the problem if it's a control module ground error yeah then that might be so i can tell you what is the two most common failures we see on those one is one of the wheel speed sensors has gone bad that's fairly common, and two is the ABS control module will fail on them. The electronic, the yeah, electronic part it'll of the set module. A pump code circuit failure when that happens. But again, without going in reading the code to know what area you're looking at, you'd be way better off to pay somebody to check that for you than just go start changing parts because it is just too many possibilities. Okay, I've yeah. I've, um, I'm determined to keep this vehicle and, and keep it running. Mm-hmm. I like it. Yeah. I've had it since it was new, so that's good. it's an investment. Yeah, oh, yeah absolutely. Go. I've got an O2 model, and I'll keep mine until I die or quit driving, whichever comes first. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Lewis. All right, Tim. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. All right, let's see if we can catch it on real quick. We've got right. Sean online. Good morning, Sean. Morning. My question is related to the engine oil maintenance that y'all were talking about earlier. What are your thoughts on the engine life monitoring system that like Honda Dodgers have? Sean, those are set, to my way of thinking, they're set to a blue sky maximum. Yeah. They push that oil limit out so far. And what I base that on, I've got customers that come in and I know how they drive the vehicle. And on some of them, well, most of them, we reset the monitor. I've got some who are real good customers. They say, well, look, don't reset my monitor. Let me see when it comes on. And we change it all based on our recommendations. I've seen people in stop-and-go driving 
driving less than five miles at a time, and that light doesn't come on to 10,000 miles out, mm-hmm. which to me is absolutely ludicrous. They probably should have changed it all three times. Right. I just don't – you know, maybe one day they'll get there, but whatever they're using to monitor that is just way, way out there. I think that you're going to never save enough money on all changes to, to replace an engine. Yeah, or to pay for one repair. I mean, one rear main seal on a Honda – can easily be way over a thousand bucks and if that seal gets hard because it all wasn't changed often enough i mean a set of valve cover gaskets if it's a v6 can be several hundred dollars it's just to me it's very very false economy and i know they're trying to make a lot of people happy they're trying to make their maintenance schedule look smaller they're trying to keep the epa happy by not using up all and all these foolish things but i think the overall cost to you is going to be much better served to watch the way you drive and base it on a common sense schedule rather than wait for that light to come on okay all righty thanks thanks man bye-bye all right there you go i think we got just about all our callers off the table there and you know we were talking a little bit about email we've received right. and everything and i think we covered that pretty well one last thing i just wanted to mention is i had a fellow who said he likes to check his gas mileage or his fuel mileage so he runs his tank to near empty every time to see mm-hmm. how far he can go I think that is a real, real bad idea. It really is. You can damage the fuel pump on your car by running it low on fuel because what happens, the fuel cools the pump and it adds head, head pressure, pressure to the pump. Correct. The pump is working very, very hard when the tank is low and there's nothing cooling it. So you can definitely end up taking out a pump. Some of the more modern-day pumps, you could take it out by running it out of gas one time sure. and destroy the pump. So not a good idea. There, Always, if you look at your gas gauge, that last little quarter eighth is usually red. Right. And that's because that's what you're supposed to fill up. Do not push it to empty. I mean, I like mine. When I get to a quarter tank, I just go ahead and fill up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I've got two vehicles, both of them. Are, one's got 168,000 miles. The other one is many, many years old. Both have the original fuel pumps in them. And, you know, you mentioned that two vehicles came in last week, and I, I went on a test drive, looked mm-hmm. down, and the light's on. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's it's real hard on them. Yeah, it's very, very, very hard on the pump, so not anything you want to do. Hey, we're going to start winding on up, getting on out here. Tell everybody how much we appreciate them listening this morning and every Saturday morning. I'd like to thank all our podcasters for listening this week and every week. Tell your friends and go to the written review. Written review, there you go. <laughs> Fill it out for us, please. There you go. Give us a good review, and that will move us up in the ranking so more people can listen and we can keep doing the show. Hey, preceding was opinion. Based on our experience in the automotive industry, have a great weekend.